0: If you want your team stacked with humble, outcome-driven, technically capable people, then you'll want to set up a CLEAR review. CLEAR stands for Complementary Leadership Evaluation and Review, and we created it for teams and technology leaders just like you. So here's what you'll leave the CLEAR review with. A clear step-by-step plan tailored to your exact situation. Tactical insights on how you can apply these skills immediately and a review of your leader's abilities so you can see how your team stacks up to 500 other teams that are just like yours. And we'll answer all of your questions about how to create better leaders faster. Remember, great leaders grow companies. Visit leaderbits.io forward slash clear to set up your clear review today. Today, we are talking to Brad Sosa, the CTO at AVI Systems, and we discuss how different generations consume technology, the most important factor in selling your team on change, and the promise and perils of early adopters. All of this right here, right now, on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. How have things been since our uh since our little lunch?
1: Things have been good. I mean really busy we got to, we're coming up on our big annual trade show. We just finished a trade show and then we've got uh, events that we host so there's a lot of that coming on and just submitted another article for Forbes so that'll be coming out here in the next couple of weeks and
0: what was that on?
1: Um, so that, the topic on that is, the title is The uh, Promise and Perils of Early Adopters. It's the idea that uh, if we listen to early adopters, we really won't create wide-scale adoption. Because what early adopters are looking for are very, very different than what knowledge workers are looking for. And, and the result is you won't get the broad-scale adoption we've
0: learned. So. Hmm. That's interesting. You're right. And also early adopters product hop like crazy. I mean, that's their thing. Right. Yeah. And they're they're willing
1: to put up with, you know, weirdness in the product to learn something new and knowledge workers won't tolerate all that little geekiness stuff. And the result is if you, you need them to get the energy to launch something new and early adopters are super, super critical to the development and innovation process, but If the objective is wide scale adoption, then you need need to really, we think, um, design more towards a knowledge worker.
0: That's interesting too, because it's like, as we're talking about this right now, my brain's thinking there's like different product, there's like different types of early adopters. There's like, how do you differentiate between if I do a product and I put it out for like freemium model and get early adopters, versus the first customers of LeaderBits, right? Like, how do you look at that? Is there a difference? I haven't thought about this at all. This is brand new thoughts for me right now.
1: Let me put it this way. Our experience has been that early adopters are really loud voices. They're highly passionate. They appreciate the messiness of innovation and what it takes to try and create something new. They're all bought into that. And so they, they they provide a lot of really critical value in the early stages. But because they're more interested in what it does rather than what they can do with it, the result is that there's a pretty big gap when you're trying to really address something that's really focused on how it gets consumed.
0: Yeah, lots of new thoughts for me. By the way, this <laughs> just so you know, this is the podcast. We just okay. do time we talk. This isn't like pre-talk banter or anything. Like, yeah, I I like you. The first time I felt that I liked you was. <laughs> <laughs> when, when this couldn't come off more awkward was when I read your uh, <laughs> uh, was when I read your article on I think it was Forbes about the multi generational users yeah. having the the same product and that was like will you give me the the ninety thousand foot view of that
1: yeah the the idea the, the the awareness came the moment of truth for me came when I was having a conversation with the CIO of a uh, large university in the Midwest, right? I've never worked with him before, never met him before. And uh, my company, our team had never worked with him. And uh, in like the first 10 minutes of a video call, he says to me, so Brad, why doesn't this stuff ever work? And um, I, I hear that from time to time. And so I went down this little exercise and said, so from my side of the video call, let me describe what I think your environment is. And I explained it. He said, yeah, that's right. I said, well, then I would say to you that your system is actually working just fine. It's designed for the wrong generation. And he looked at me and went, what are you talking about? And I said to him, here's the deal. We've learned that most organizations have a minimum of three. Today, could be as many as five, but four is pretty typical. You'll have today, Um, Unless you're in higher ed or healthcare, you'll typically have a traditional, a boomer, an Xer, and a millennial, all of those demographics in the same place. And uh, how each of those groups or demographics view technology is super different. And the way they try and solve problems is very, very different. And that's kind of where this whole thing started. I'll share with you from From my perspective, our company, we have four generations actively working together, trying to solve problems. And uh, I'm a boomer, obviously. And as a boomer, you're taught that the way to solve a problem is somebody gives you the problem and you go hide away someplace and research it and come up with your best idea and bring the solution back to the team. But a millennial, as an example, a a millennial's first action tends to be, to crowdsource the solution to that problem and immediately start collaborating. And in our space, because we're all around communications and collaboration, the distinction between how people solve problems drives design, and that's that was kind of a big aha. Now, yes, for a 90,000 foot, that's probably more than you wanted, but.
0: No, no, that was beautiful. And actually, I think it's the first time somebody used millennial in a sentence that like I enjoyed. <laughs> 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 it's like finally something we actually do. Cause like, we're not breaking all the markets in the world, oh, no. <laughs> but we, but we do crowdsource. It's like, it's the most natural thing for us. It's like, okay, I have a problem. Let's right. go, you know, do some research, figure out like who's experiencing this, who can I talk to? I guess we do the research. Like we're going for it, but sure. we're not going for it alone. Like I go to research about who I can talk to, about the problem and how I can, how I can get people involved that are credible as quickly as possible.
1: Right. And and the result of that is that a a boomer will generally say, I've researched this. I'm right. I need to convince you to change your mind. And a millennial (laughs) will say, I'm right because many of us have arrived at the same conclusion at roughly the same time. Yeah. Right, And so the interdependency on communications and collab and all that other kind of way people talk and communicate and work together, especially across distances, is very, the dependency is so different. Can, can I tell you another story about this? Yeah, please. <clears throat> so think of a prototypical conference room, right? So two monitors in the front, camera, microphones, something at the table to control it, a, a A traditional will walk into that room and say, that looks expensive, why do I need that? A a boomer will walk into that room and say, wow, this is complex. Who can I get to operate this for me? An Xer will walk into that room and say, wow, this could really help me. I'll change the way I work so I can use this. And a millennial will walk into that very same room, look at the same gear, the same design, and say, "This this is too hard, can't I just FaceTime? And it's the same stuff, the same technology. It's just how is it designed differently so that different people's perspectives on how to consume technology can be adopted. That's really the driving point.
0: Now, what are you saying? You're saying Xer? Because that's a term I don't know.
1: A Gen Xer. So that's between. Oh, a Gen Xer. A, yeah.
0: Okay. Yeah. I gotta look up the. Um, I don't. I don't know. I know I'm not a boomer. <laughs> <laughs> but, but millennials really large. Like it's, it's a really it's
1: super huge, right?
0: Yeah, it's it's too big. It's... It is.
1: It is. It's unfair, really. Quite honestly, to label any particular group. But if you're looking at it from a demographic perspective, that kind of categorizes. When we talk about this with um, the market at large, or customers, or others, it we I almost always have to kind of define what I mean by the terms. Yeah. And so I will say a traditional is somebody who can remember, maybe if they were, if they're a younger traditional, they can remember World War II, right? Or they might, they'll remember the Korean War and their idea of technology is TV, right? And then a boomer, they remember when man walked on the moon and they remember when TVs were wireless and phones were wired. That was kind of their view on technology. And Xer remembers 9-11, and their view on technology is I have to go down, I used to have to go down the hall to a special classroom where they had boxes on tables that connected to this thing called the internet. And a millennial views this as their computer and will be absolutely fine writing a proposal on their phone and sending it to somebody. And the perspectives around accessibility to technology and what it means to move their life and work forward and is so different based upon those different experiences and age groups. So that's kind of how I define it when we talk
0: to people. That's good. I like how you at least give the stories, right? So then people <laughs> don't get as hung up on the labels. Cause like I right. can imagine traditionalists now, your version of them, I can imagine the boomers. And I guess I'm just in that awkward in between uh, gen X and millennial by your definitions because I mean yeah I'm like right in the middle of those two right and,
1: and it's interesting too right because your age chronologically doesn't necessarily translate to the behaviors that most people associate with those demographics
0: right? that's so true because I was Super early because my father was an engineer in technology So while I had this experience of like being on the internet like right when we started to get color like right when browsers came out and Like my peers do not 80 80 plus percent of them do not have that experience. They didn't get it until uh, We started getting the Nokia block phones and like that's when they started getting technology in high school I got it in elementary school, right? Um, So yeah, so interesting. Yeah, I like that though. Millennials, can't I just FaceTime? It's like, <laughs> <laughs> it's like can't I just zoom? Yeah.
1: Right. And and that drives a lot of the innovation today, at least in our space. But I think it's true just about any tech segment.
0: One of the things I like about like meeting guests before they come on the show and developing relationships with them is like the cool like I get to learn all of your your little stories and it's ah oh, it's just so great. I just want to be like, tell that one and tell that one. <laughs> but I I um, before we like, I want to talk about the engineering design before sure. that, why don't you share a little bit about what your company is, what it does, the market you serve?
1: Yeah, so AVI Systems is a, we'd be categorized as an audiovisual integrator or a communications integrator. Um, we've been around for 45 years and we were literally that company that would push the overhead projector down the hallway and sell film transparency back in the day, right? That's kind of how we started. Um, t- today, um, we're a national organization, we do business in 25 countries and our focus is really around how people collaborate visually with each other. So that includes conference and meeting spaces and all the things around A V, live venues, big outdoor environments, stadiums, that kind of thing. It includes a uh, unified collaboration and digital media and broadcast and all that kind of stuff that goes along with it. It's Great industry to be in. It's probably the most fun I've ever had in a career or in an industry has been
0: this particular industry, and I've been
1: in for a while.
0: You ever work with like Live Nation or any of those types of companies that do the huge outdoor events? Sure. So we just
1: finished Texas Live, um, Mm -hmm. which is a really big venue. It's um, in between the um, Texas Rangers baseball field and the Dallas Cowboys Stadium, and it was turned into this big outdoor live event with bands and media and food and drink and just a great big social gathering there. And so we were actively involved in that. Matter of fact, it was listed in one of our industry magazines as one of the top 10 projects for 2018. And so we we do a lot of that. We do a lot of uh, NBA, NFL, uh, Major League Baseball, stadiums, instant replays, media around that. Um, So large venues, live venues. Um, that's a big part of um, our industry, and it's certainly a part of what we do.
0: So, and help me paint this picture because I get nerdy about it. Sure. So, how? Do you, I imagine I've I've been to stadium events and I see all the people on the equipment and they have and who who is how does what role does AVI play? Are you providing the equipment? Are you providing the people? Do you do the design? Like, how, what role do you play in that?
1: Yeah. So, so in a in a uh, large sporting venue or an esports venue. Our role is typically not on air in the smaller markets. We might be doing the media production truck, the TV production truck and going on air. Um, in the larger, um, main markets, that's probably not what we're doing, but what we are doing is, um, all of the instant replay, the ISO videos. So, um, as an example, I was hearing a story from my practice manager that uh, manages the digital media practice, and he was explaining at one of the baseball fields that he recently won um, and delivered a project to, he's integrating all the uh, instant replay to the uh, analytics on field, so live analytics. So You're watching a baseball game, and you're looking at the speed of the pitch, and the rotation of the ball, and the trajectory off the bat. and all of that's animated and it's got a lot of analytics that they're sharing and stats. He's integrating video with the radar systems and the media analytics systems and putting all the AI together. And then that becomes the instant replay package that somebody in the production booth plays on air or plays in the, in the suites there or plays on the jumbo, the big screen or whatever. It's all
0: integrated into that. So they like buy like a plug-in type thing. Like it's like a package. They will buy this feature of this, Right. So, so you, like, if you're going to make a sales video for the product you're selling, you're going to actually just show the instant replay that you can provide.
1: Exactly. And if you want to get now, I'm going to get geeky on it. So, okay. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, we we're working with a customer um, last week, and the the idea that they're asking for from us is that they need to increase increase the amount of their on air production, their web streaming production by about 20 or 25%, but can't do any additional headcount. And so um, what they want to do is they want to be able to, through AI, glean the news of the day from all the social and on-air sources. Um, They want to be able to use AI to pick the media sources that they want out of the universe of available sources. They want it to then provide software that picks the best clip and then does the rough edit. So that the first time human eyes actually see the video file is after all of the video selection has been made and the first edit has been attempted. (laughs) All that's being done via AI.
0: So the AI will pick the story.
1: Pick the story, pick the clips, pick the editing sequence and do the first edit. That's what they're asking for from us. And then from there, they can tweak it and move it and say, "I, you know, I really want this one instead of that." But instead of humans going through all of that work, um, humans now can, can can focus on the storytelling part.
0: Oh, that's brilliant!
1: Can work on the on the assembly and, and the discovery part. So it's pretty cool, right?
0: I have an idea for you. Alrighty. okay. So I worked on this project a while back, and what I what I was doing was analyzing news like large sets of news to pick find different stories and watch how they they go and they trend but the the solution that i arrived at that i thought was pretty unique was um to detect trending stories prior to them trending um i would look at the rate of in the rate of this how quickly the information spread between trusted sources so like think about it if a new story comes out and it's and it gets written about by other trusted sources. The uh, distance in time is equal to uh, the popularity of that story. Because right. The most important stories, you drop everything and write. So when really big stories come along, we can tell because these stories are moving really fast through the most trusted networks. And so that's how we were figuring out. Um, And you did
1: this? You you created this?
0: Yeah. And then what we did was we took patterns. So we started tracking stories and networks. So I could tell you like the rhythm of what's going on with how stories generally flow. And then like this story will flow and maybe it'll be a day behind or maybe six hours, maybe 20 minutes. And so we knew the rhythm of how stories flow throughout these trusted news sources. And then we could detect when they, when they, um, based on the average times when the stories would spread really fast, if they would hit, um, we would have a good shot, like if, if a story came out on one and then hitting the other in 20 minutes, that was huge because like the average was like four hour delay. So right. like we knew that had a really good shot of trending, but then if they hit a third within 20 minutes, it was like 99%, like that thing would definitely trend through the other 12. But then if you start to look at the um, media like eyeballs, Uh, Because that's what it really is. Them spreading through the sources is they're actually hitting their distribution channels.
1: Right, so that's really cool. Similar kind of concept what we're talking about. Um, And then you tie into that things like um, active speech-to-text and then doing meta-tagging through the closed captioning and doing, um, there's uh, AI today that can watch the video in real time so the software watches the video and then picks out the most prominent elements in the video and then defines for you what's happening in the video. This is this is a new car announcement. We're 98% sure it's a Porsche. We're 99% sure it's a 2019 Porsche turbo whatever. And the background scene is someplace in Germany and labels it and whatever. So all of those meta tag data that used to have to have somebody watch and then interpret and put in is being done now through AI, it's pretty cool. And your idea around looking at uh, metadata and trends, it's a really cool idea.
0: Yeah, because before the only way people were doing it, like it was like, oh, it's a trending, if you go to write a trending algorithm, you look at your own data. How right. many people on my side are viewing this? How popular is this becoming on my network? And I was like, well, that's not gonna tell you because like overall in the whole industry. So that was how we we solved, we used the uh, uh, the Bing News API. Um, to right because like Google and everyone else shut down their um, news APIs track stories. So we use them and yeah, it was, that was a lot of, oh, that was a lot of fun project. I I'm so interested to see what it looks like when it comes out. Like, are you guys, did you already take on the project? Or are you just talking about it?
1: So, so the elements that are needed to create that, I would say that probably uh, three quarters of those elements are already available. Um, finding ways to integrate them together is going to be the challenge. And then there's, the last 15 or 20% that are going to need to have something custom crafted. So they're doing about half of what we've talked about. They're doing that today. Mm-hmm. They need us to kind of push them over the edge to get to the other place. And, you know, we love it. Those those are the kind of customers that help transform who we are. And then we turn around and take that uh, discovery and innovation and package it so that we can take it someplace else which kind of goes back to our first topic which is around they're the early adopter and if we try and repackage that and just deliver it like we deliver it to them to everybody else it probably won't work but if we can figure out what how everybody else wants to consume it and design towards that then now we have a really cool solution there
0: there's a guy no know named bruno who's on the show uh he had a company called uru and they're in New York and they did um, advanced tagging of real time video and like replacement.
1: Yeah. So
0: yeah, and they got like, I think a month or two after you came on the show, they got bought by Adobe. Um, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so Adobe has some really bright people now in, the, um, in that video tagging uh, space. They were they started out doing it because um, if I'm running ads on like let's say Facebook video, I don't know the ad that just came before mine. And there are certain ads that you don't want to follow each other. Uh, there's pretty much no great public example that I've, I've come up. All the examples everyone's had that go really bad. Yeah, you definitely don't want certain ads, like medication ads following, like dating ads, like things like, you don't want certain things happening. And so they would they built a platform that would analyze all the objects to identify like the context and like yeah. what bad it was. And then they would allow that data to be shared with like Facebook so they could make sure that ads weren't conflicting with each other in a negative way.
1: Yeah. So so what we're talking about right now is in this kind of broader media, live media kind of environment. We spent a lot of time in what would seem to be pretty mundane conference rooms and meeting spaces, but we're seeing a ton of energy there. We introduced a, um, a concept um, last summer where kind of bringing it to product fruition we think maybe before the end of this year and the idea is that when when you walk into a room the camera that you're going to use for conferencing and collab is also doing facial recognition and it's looking for the person in the room whose facial identity matches their um, outlook meeting invite organizer or the meeting host and when it sees that person in the room then it enables uh, voice control and then you talk to the system and tell it what you want it to do as opposed to try and find a button or a remote or whatever and the the early versions of that have proven out to be pretty cool there's some interesting challenges with it but it's kind of the holy grail that everybody's looking for you just want the system to understand what you want it to do and talk to it right
0: you want it to know you
1: yeah you want it to know you but you don't want the mics on all the time and you don't want to be storing stuff, you know, in the cloud, language in the cloud. It has to kind of stay on-prem for security reasons and all that other kind of stuff. So figuring all of that out while making it pretty natural is what we're trying to work on now in the conferencing
0: space. That's really, that's really cool. And yeah. keep me up to date about that other project because the, the 10 or the 20% that I think is going to be hard and unique is how you actually integrate with the video editors, um, and processing and, and building those interfaces to select the clips and how that human interaction goes. I think that's the part that's like not clear. All the other pieces so, seem to kind of be there.
1: Yeah. So, when we get to a place where we have it operating, um, I'll ask our customer if we can do a podcast from there to you. If <laughs> we- <laughs>
0: That'd be cool. Yeah. All right. Because <laughs> I'm telling you what, I like being around people who are innovating and pushing the envelope, and that sounds, I don't know, some things get me more like, excited, sure. like nerd excited than others, and that one sounds really cool. Probably because we do a lot of video editing here.
1: <laughs> sure, exactly.
0: <laughs> and it, it's actually like, it's its a watching Alex, our video editor work, it's like, there's a lot to video editing.
1: Yes, Yeah. it's very nuanced, it's highly stylized, and hopefully you can, through machine learning, you can pick up on some of those you know, style choices, but those are the kinds of things you have to figure
0: out. One day, the apps will just see, like, the same type of edits he makes over and over and start, like, automating them and, like, helping. Like, you always, like, you don't even have to, it doesn't even ask you. Like, one day you just come in and it's made a template of your style that you just happen to use, like, the aggregate of your style of all your edits. That's kind of neat, right? Yeah. Then we're in the Iron Man movie where we're working on the car. (laughs) 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 That guy's asking us, yeah. (laughs) So, speaking of that, like there was a lot of cool design in that movie, too, and engineering, and you have some great ideas and thoughts on engineering to design, can you share that with me?
1: Yeah, so our industry has been um, traditionally very engineering-focused, centered around a design-build model, customer talks the same language that we talk, it's all around specs, And so our job has traditionally been to engineer a solution and bring that back to the customer. And um, what's happened over the last, it's probably been happening five years. We've become aware of it about three years ago. And the customer persona has really changed. It's changed from a, a user that understands our language to a person who has no idea and doesn't even care about the specs. They're just trying to get something accomplished. And when that customer's need transitions like that, um, what we've realized is that our value and process needs to change from engineering to engineering and design. And so the role of engineering in our industry, or at least at AVI, has transitioned from um, creating a solution and delivering it to really being responsible for stability and robustness and driving, you know, any kind of anything that's fragile out of it. But it's the design that really aligns the technology to how people want to consume it. And, and that's, that's what's driven um, the growth that we've had. That's what's driven some of the innovation and changes in the um, practices and, and individual technology segments that we're in. Because it's all around how people consume it now. It's not really, can I get this done? It's how do I do it?
0: No, that's like, you're blowing my mind over here. <laughs> yeah. i i didn't get that uh, the first time you described it but this is awesome so what's happening when you were describing that and you summed it up perfectly at the end but Like growing up, like when I started in technology, it was all about like, can we design this chipset? Is it even possible? Is the speed possible? Let's talk to the engineers. Like everyone was focused on like, everything was about engineering and like, can we get it out the door and shipped on time? And that built like in life, our base layer of these technology and components. And now it's more like, how do we put things together? Because I don't need to, to know the super low level details, I know that I see like a normal person, a normal intelligent person can like see the technology existing over there and over there and be like, it needs to come together somehow.
1: Right. And what's interesting about this is that the way this used to work in our, at least in our technical space, the way it used to work was, um, a, a, a person would say, I need to get this thing done. An engineer would say, here's how I'm going to put stuff together so that you can get it done. And you would deliver it to somebody typically within the IT stack, the CIO's office, and they would figure out how to care and feed for it so that it's sustainable. But the idea around how broad is it actually being used wasn't even part of the concept. It was, can I use it? Not how well can I use it? And today what's happening is that business leaders are making decisions about technology and the CIO's office is hopefully ahead of those decision making, those, those asks, but are often running to catch up. And the result of that is um, you don't have things that are, that are well integrated into the normal workflows that just a, a rank and file worker at some organization wants to do.
0: You mean to tell me that like sometimes technology companies (laughs) say they have something that they don't have.
1: Shocking. I know it's (laughs) shocking.
0: It's like a feature that's coming soon.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Shocking. But that's that the, the world we're finding today is that business leaders want to consume something and they really don't care what the makeup of it is. They just want to
0: get something done. And they want the outcome. Right, the outcome exactly. They're focused on the outcome, and that's that's not a bad thing. No, it's not, it's not only at all. a bad thing if if not everyone's focused on the same outcome.
1: <laughs> right, and, and it becomes a challenge when the when the people that are supplying the solution are talking about specs, and the people that are asking for the solution are talking about outcomes, and they don't have the same language around it. You know, there's a high potential that you're going to deliver something that's different than what they expect.
0: That's like, and lots of change happening, right?
1: Right, exactly.
0: <laughs> so, with with all the change happening, your CTO, large company, lots of technologists, lots of engineers, and with your customer persona changing, everything changing. How how do you help your teams deal with change?
1: Yeah, so I think one of the first messages is to um, is to help everybody understand we don't have to be perfect; we just have to be progressing. And if we wait until it's perfect, um, we'll never get there. And I would say to you, as engineers, we all want it to be perfect. And it's hard sometimes for engineers to say I'm close enough. Um, but getting it to a useful state that serves the current expectation, th- that's where we're really shooting, as opposed to having a definitive set of specs. It's really around, is it meeting the expectation? And sometimes those expectations are hard to quantify. And I would say the second thing is I'm constantly having conversations with our engineers at large, the the team that reports up to me, to our customers and our sellers, that the product life cycle in our industry is six months. So if you don't like what you have, um, it's probably going to be an iteration or two away in six months, which is difficult because when you're designing something, when you're designing something new in... You also, at the same time, have to design its obsolescence and what you're gonna do next. And if you don't do that, then that's when you get stuck.
0: With a legacy product yep. that's expensive
1: yep. to maintain.
0: Yeah. Or, yeah. I'm sorry, go ahead, please. Oh, no, I just said you have to sunset it. Yeah.
1: Right, yeah. or figure out a way to iterate it, right? Yeah.
0: You ca- it can't be magic. Like, you have to have, you have, to have no. some direction with it.
1: Right. And, and the idea for us in our, in, in our particular space is that um, it's constantly evolving. We need to embrace that and we need to recognize that there's always, always, always going to be gaps. So let's find ways to close those gaps and try and, and um, keep things moving forward, not get too stuck in one place.
0: Yeah. You know, I struggled. Well, I think everybody kind of struggles with it at some point when you choose to be great. Usually one of the first hurdles you struggle with is perfection. <laughs> like you, cause you got to right. It's like the moment you choose to be great. It's like, I did stuff for a long time. I didn't write tests. I wrote sloppy code for like first several years of my programming. And then I was like, I got so frustrated by that. I chose to be great. And then I'm like, gotten this perfect stuck in perfection. And then I'm like, all right, now I'm over that hurdle. Um, <laughs> but, but yeah, the, I guess when you're balancing perfection and getting stuff out the door, one of the things that's helped me a lot for some reason, you know how there's like some things you read, they just kind of stick with you. And sure. I was listening on Audible to one of Bill Nye's books, um, yeah. you know, the science guy, right? And that's what they, by the way, my entire like elementary education was science class was essentially them playing us those videos. Um, so so he he had this one thing in his, one of his more recent books where he said, uh, he's talking about how like the DNA evolves and changes over time through mammals and animals and everything. And he says it doesn't have to be perfect, but it always has to be good enough to get to that right. next generation. And that's a really interesting concept of like, you're right, like life doesn't have to be perfect, but it has to be good enough to get to the next level because species die out like they just do. And so whenever I, I get uh, feel like I'm getting stuck on perfection, I'm like, okay, this is good enough.
1: Yeah, and it's hard, I think, for for those of us who are engineers, it's it's hard to accept the term good enough. I know. And the thing that we we constantly talk about is around the use expectations. And whether whether it's really well refined or not isn't really relevant to that user. So I was at a trade show here a couple of weeks ago in Vegas, and everybody was talking about 8K resolution and 16K resolution and all that kind of stuff. And wow. I'm telling you you're looking at it, it's awesome. It's brilliant. But does a but does the normal meeting room user, conference room user, does it matter to them? Mm, no, 1080p is probably good enough for most users. Now, if I'm talking healthcare, yeah, 8k is killer because I can make critical decisions about how I care for a patient based upon that visual information. But for the typical user, I don't know, is it really important to them? Maybe have it's good enough.
0: Yeah, I don't even rent my movies HD. I mean, <laughs> I don't watch a lot of TV. But like, honestly, I'm like, SD looks good for me. Like, I, I don't, I think it's, I don't know, some people really care. Um, but for me, I just, I don't know
1: yeah so good enough is related to or success is related to how enthusiastic the user embraces it does it satisfy the expectation that they have and if it does then it's actually not good enough it's awesome
0: yeah good and that's also important it's like a little disclaimer right good enough doesn't work for lazy people <laughs> Because they're good enough is not good enough. Good enough works for perfectionists who are trying to justify stopping themselves from being perfectionists. Clearly, Uh, clearly. So, how much uh, I like you as a leader because we got to spend some time together. I got to see how much you care. Um, You have the qualities of greatest leaders on earth. And so, I like to point that out Uh, when I come across as people because. I just have a high volume of people I interact with. And and so I'm curious to know how much much time or how you go about, uh, we'll start with how much time, how much time you spend growing and mentoring your executive team?
1: Oh, I would say half to two thirds of my time is really spent in uh, developing others and um, helping us really accomplish something together that's striking and remarkable, worth worth having people talk about. Um, So most of my time is really spent doing that with other people.
0: That's that's good, that's like a lot of time. Yeah, yeah. It's important.
1: It is, because you'll never, um, somebody once told me, you know Brad, if you cross the finish line, great, you've done something. But if you bring other people with you, now you've led. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, mm, okay, that's where my focus really needs to be.
0: I like that. There's a, a company out near you called Telium, and yeah. they do like analytics. I don't know if you've heard of them or not, but uh, their founder, Mike, or their co founder, Mike, was on the show earlier this week. And they're actually a customer leader bits. He was uh, talking with me about uh, the thing that he's most excited about. Cause their company just hit, did like over a hundred million. And I think they're like worth like $300 million or something like that. But, uh, cause I said, I said, are you a unicorn? He goes, no, we're like a quarter horse. <laughs> <laughs> nice, <laughs> Right. So I'm just guesstimating based off of that conversation. Um, but he said the most exciting thing about it is there's like 15, 20 people that are going to be um, like financially set for life when they're, when their company, um, goes public or sells or whatever, private equity, whatever they're going to do financially, I'm not sure. But he's like, I'm counting that number of people I'm going to make like multi-generational wealthy on my team. And that's what is exciting to me. I was like, that's So
1: what a great, what a great story, right? And we're an employee owned company or hundred percent owned by the employees. Oh, wow. And um, one of the core values that we carry is this, is the recognition that wealth in America doesn't come from working really hard. Income does. Wealth comes from owning something that has an appreciable value. And so what we've discovered is that this employee ownership thing um, has changed the culture of the the company because, because those who have been at the company more than a few years recognize that they're building wealth for themselves and their families, and that that's a multi-generational outcome of the work effort that they're providing. And and there's, um, out of our organization, I want to say close to 10% of the employee population that's the general workers um, are well over a million dollars in their um, retirement plan and stock value. And most of those carry uh, no VP title, or um, are not part of what you would normally consider the executive leadership team. They're just good people that do really well at what they do and contribute to the value of the company, and they, as a result of that, gain the wealth from it. It's a great observation.
0: I, I love it. And when I first, um, like now that we're talking about wealth, when I first started talking to some wealthy people uh, about like, you know, how do you do it, and that type of thing. Right. What what did what tactical? I don't like the how you do it. Like, I don't typically ask that question. I I usually ask the question, what tactical advice do you have for me? (laughs) Right. And this one person told me, they said, like, uh, take the the first money that you make, like the first time you make a good amount of money, um, if you're going for it, take that money and buy income producing assets because wealthy, the difference between wealthy people and rich people is rich people spend them when they make a million dollars, they buy a car and a house, and they spend their million dollars. When uh, wealthy people, what they do is they take that million dollars and they buy something that produces X amount of income a year or X amount of income a month. Then they you live off of that money or spend that money on the things that they want. And if they do that enough, they'll end up, they're never spending their principal. They're only ever spending right. the interest it's earning. And right. I was like, boom, mind blown.
1: Yeah, it's, it's around... Uh, it's around this idea that um, the the assets where I'm putting my time should create assets and those assets should create wealth instead of just looking at what am I earning and how do I get by and and um, I'm gonna speak for us as a company the employee the fact that it's hundred percent owned by its employees drives a really really cool culture where we're looking at the customer satisfaction first and we're looking at how we're elevating each other through the organization either either in terms of what your skill set is what your role is or your personal wealth it's really a cool idea
0: yeah and i like what you said too because a lot of people when they think about investing or money or wealth they instantly think oh I, what product like investment product can i buy or where can i put savings account and i'm always the way i've Manage my finances is investing in myself because, yeah, because I, with if you have time, like you can make yourself more valuable, (laughs) like that is an option in this game. And so, I'm like, all right, what can I do to make myself more valuable? Because right now, like buying a huge real estate property and the rental income, like for me, that just wasn't like an option. It was like, I have. Some extra money, I just need to invest it into something that's going to pay off long term and making myself more useful. Uh, that that has been an investment that I would make like a thousand times over. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Also, Warren Buffett's investment advice. I was like, that guy's pretty <laughs> smart. And he said, if you he said like, if you don't have like a bunch of money, he goes invest in yourself because even when you have a bunch of money, those people like there was actually this uh, like formula. People and they started investing like two percent of their net worth in themselves per year, and then they go five percent, and then they just consistently make more money. I was like, "Yeah, I believe that." Right. Yeah. Right. I don't know how we got. We don't ever talk about that on the show, by the way. First time we've ever talked about wealth on the podcast.
1: <laughs> there you go. It's it's relevant to how you. It's relevant to how our organization operates. Right.
0: So, how do you? Um, because you have so much good information, I'm going to just pepper you with every, every yeah, man, broad, broad array of topics, uh, recruiting the next generation talent, bringing mm-hmm. in talent, uh, in the technology area of the company. Do you work with recruiting? Do you go recruit talent? Like what is your recruiting talent look like from your perspective?
1: Yeah. So, um, recruiting across the company is a challenge, um, because there's a, there's a strong, or really broad, I should say, variation skill sets that are required. We have a lot of positions in the company that are kind of um, skilled labor and uh, workforce entry kinds of roles, and then we have you know highly sophisticated uh, engineering roles in classified environments around national security. So, and everything in between, right? And so um, there's a there's some. Uh, really specific plays that we try and work with. one, one play is really around um, creating connections to local colleges and internship programs and how, how do we bring in people who are who have the right character and have a, a level of skill set that demonstrates to us they can accomplish something and as a result of that, because of the character and the, and the skill set that they have, we're willing to invest and help them grow and mature. We've done other things, which are um, hiring workshops, and you know we recognize maybe in certain markets that there's a significant population of people that have the kind of skill set that we need that are unhappy maybe with where they're at. And so we'll just hold a recruiting workshop and? we're surprised at how many people might come through something like that where you can have a real meaningful conversation around where we're headed and why we're a little different than others in our industry and if that story resonates with you let's you know get you on board and then we do use recruiters from time to time and those recruiters um, tend to be um, helping us focus on people that have a really well-defined uh skill set and maybe the the um the universe of people that are available that fit that skill set is pretty tight. So we might use um, recruiters
0: to help us get there. And then you do, um, events too, right?
1: Yeah. Always, always recruiting and, um, events that we have out in the open with, with customers and vendors constantly having conversations around, um, not necessarily recruiting, but just what life at our organization is like, what life at AVI is like. And um, I remember I was uh, recruiting um, an executive position a couple of years ago. And this, this person that now works for us, they could have gone, they could have written their own path and gone any place in our industry. And I asked them, so what's your interest in us? And he said, well, this competitor, they're, they're the largest in the industry, you guys aren't. It's true. This competitor, they've got a great story around global and you guys are more national but not quite as global as they are yeah that's true so you guys have the culture that everybody wants and that's what that that is the common conversation that we have with the people that are looking to join
0: us it's
1: really around culture
0: how do you how do you shape culture
1: yeah so um, i'll tell you a story our ceo took us on a journey a couple of years ago and uh, he was. Um, incredibly courageous on this. And it paid off really big. And and what he did is he started with the executive team, the team that reports directly to him. And he said, you know, culture, let's read this book on culture together. And the basic premise behind it was um, values that you create for your organization define what you aspire to. But culture is the expression of what people really think about who you are. And so what we decided that we wanted to do is we wanted to change our values statements um, and have our company, our employees across all disciplines at different levels in our organization, define for us what our culture is because the culture is how you actually behave. You can't really, I don't think you can actually force a culture or define a culture You can define values, but culture is how your workforce and the people in your organization just naturally behave. And so we turned to them and said, can you tell us how we behave as an organization? That's a pretty gutsy move. Yeah,
0: it is. I love it.
1: Instead of the CEO saying, this is who we are, conform to this. He was willing to say, this is what we aspire to be, but you tell me who we are and um, across the company over several months most of the year um, different voices collectively came together and redefined what we think our culture is and then and then put that together in a set of core values and um, defines who we are and that's where some of these things like elevation the whole idea around how i elevate our customer how we elevate each other that's core to our core values and we said that that's our culture that's what we naturally do. Leave us to ourselves, we're gonna find a way to help elevate each other. Um, crossing the finish line is one of our core values. That's another cultural statement, which is really around this idea that um, if we have an idea, that's great. But if we put the idea to work, that's better. And then if we actually finish what we said we were going to do, that's the best. So how, how do we bring all of that together? There's a number of different cultural statements that reflect who we think we are as a company.
0: I like that. Do you post that on your website?
1: Yeah, it's on the website. It's all over our, our offices. It's things we talk about on a pretty regular basis. When we in management at different levels of the organization, certainly at the executive team, but I hear it at different levels in the organization when we're struggling with what's the right thing to do, how do we make a decision in this challenge? Um, those, those talking points, those cultural values enter into the conversation and provide guidance as to what we think the good beans in this particular situation.
0: I I like it. It kind of reminds me of um, you ever come across Ray Dalio principles? Sure. Yeah. It's well, he is like, he went crazy with it. (laughs) He really got into that. But yeah, that kind of reminds me of like, if you're going to make a decision now you have some values to help guide that decision
1: yeah and that's how you create scale that's how you um, do more than just create uniformity but really create unity across the organization
0: i like it. i heard a public speaker say culture is what happens when i think the boss leaves the building or something like that right yeah exactly <laughs> that's kind of reminds me of that so as we wrap up here i'm curious curious to know if you go back and talk with uh, the version of yourself at like 10 years into your career, maybe like maybe at, let's say like 25, 30, what is the one piece of advice that you'd give that individual? Wow.
1: So I think I would, I would say to that person, give yourself time. I think we, uh, run ahead of the changes of seasons in our life and the changes of seasons in our organizations. And I probably would encourage my, my younger self to give myself more time and uh, not be so concerned or stressed about deadlines are critical. I'm not suggesting that deadlines aren't important, but in measuring, um, who we are against a perceived set of, of goals or values or accomplishments, give myself a
0: little bit more time. Well, you're doing awesome. <laughs> well, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love what you're doing, and you've been like fantastic to to get to know and hang out with, and and talk with, and meet. And Jake, uh, who's editing the podcast, Jake, we met him where we got you the shirt that you wanted. What was the name oh, of that hey, place? The Dallas Point. Ballast Point. Yeah. Yeah. We ended up getting him a hat, but yeah, he he nice. liked it a lot. Yeah. And that you, was some Jay. good beer too. Yeah.
1: Yeah, it was a great place, right? Good food, good beer. Yeah. San Diego.
0: Yeah. And then we went to San Clemente. I don't know if I'm saying that right. San Clemente. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And yeah. we did some uh, drone shots and some video. Nice. Yeah. It came out really nice too.
1: Nice. Joel, this is, this has actually been a pleasure for me getting to know you, having the conversations. It's, um, it's enjoyable. It's a lot of fun. It's provocative. I really have enjoyed it.
0: All right. Have a fantastic day, Brad.
1: You too, man. Thanks. Yeah. We will.
0: Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to help, please take a moment right now to open up the iTunes app and leave a review of the podcast. If you take a screenshot of the review and text it or email it to a friend who needs to listen to the podcast and then cc me, joel at moderncto.io. If you cc me on the email, I'll send you a copy of the Modern CTO book or give you a shout out on the podcast, whichever you prefer.